Stimulus bill signed? Check. Stock markets at record highs? Check, check. Rising treasury yields? Check, check, check. Worries about inflation? Checkity check, check, check. Potential bubbles bubbling in digital currencies and tokens? Check, please. Hey, I'm kind of in a hurry. I don't need this stress. Just fire up a fresh episode of the Investopedia Express. We are in the one-year anniversary zone of the beginning of the pandemic, but we're also in the early innings of a broad-based economic recovery and the reopening of most economies around the world and the country. In the U.S., we've passed a key milestone where the number of people vaccinated exceeds the number of people infected. Vaccinations are climbing every day as new vaccines are coming to the market and age limits and eligibility for getting vaccinated come down. Worldwide, more than 359 million doses have been administered so far. President Biden said last week that the country may return to normal by July 4th, but if you look around the country, a lot of people are acting like it already is. That's pretty dicey considering the new variants of the virus and the high level of daily cases in some cities. Over in Europe, Italy is considering a return to lockdown as infections rise, and in Hong Kong, hundreds of people were sent into quarantine after an outbreak hit banks and gyms. Stimulus checks or direct deposits are in the mail or coming into millions of U.S. bank accounts, although about 8 million people were left out of those payments in the final passage of the bill as the income eligibility was capped. Still, an eligible family of four may receive up to $10,000 in direct payments and childcare tax credits, and that's all tax-free. Will American consumers put that money back into the economy with discretionary spending on travel, restaurants, new clothes, and more home improvement toys? Or will they save it like so many did in 2020 as the personal savings rate hit an all-time high? Or will they invest in the stock market like so many did last year too? Do they still believe we'll see more gains ahead for stocks after 2020's stunning rebound? Well, according to Investopedia's recent survey of our million and a half daily newsletter readers, you do. You're as bullish as you've been in the past year, with 43% of you describing yourself that way. More than 40% of you expect to put more money back into the stock market. More than 70% of you are expecting positive gains this year, with 20% of that group expecting 10% or more out of the stock market. Well, three months into 2021, and we're on pace for those kinds of gains. The biggest bubble in your opinion? Bitcoin. More than 60% of you feel that way, but more than 20% of you have added it to your portfolios in the last year. That's risky business, but hey, I added some too. We'll get into what's driving Bitcoin and its cousins and the future of the digital economy with futurist Lex Sokolin a little later in the show. But let's get set up for the week ahead. And it's all about interest rates and yield curve control. The Federal Open Market Committee meets on interest rates this Tuesday and Wednesday here in the U.S., and the Fed's funds rate isn't going anywhere. We know that's not moving until 2023 because the Fed keeps telling us that. But will the Fed promise to increase its government bond purchases every month to take some pressure off the sell-off in government bonds that's driving yields higher? Will it return to Operation Twist and buy more long-term bonds while selling short-term bonds? Unlike quantitative easing, which is what the Fed is doing now by buying those $120 billion in bonds every month, Operation Twist doesn't expand the Fed's balance sheet, which makes it a less aggressive form of easing. If you hadn't noticed, the Fed's balance sheet is pretty swollen. Well, what about inflation? Well, it's everywhere you look, although it was kind of hiding in February. Don't worry, it's here, and you're going to feel it every time you buy groceries and gas, and it's climbing higher. 
The Bank of England also meets this week on interest rates, and those rates also aren't going anywhere. The bank is in the middle of an 895 billion pound bond buying program itself, which is due to be fully used up later this year. The BOE may signal that it will continue or save its firepower until May when it will announce some new economic forecasts. The UK is three months into Brexit, so any commentary on how that's going will be of great interest. Earnings season is coming to an end, but not before we hear from FedEx and Nike. While their businesses couldn't be any different, both will offer a pretty good window into the global economic recovery and the appetite for more spending. Way underneath all the noise about the rocketing price of Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin, and all the rest is a fundamental transformation of the digital economy. The way we spend, how we pay, what we consider to be money, and how commerce will be conducted, it's moving faster than you can cut your next check. We're going to explain what checks are later in the show. But there is no question that digital ledgers and the blockchain technology will underlie most of the way we interact with money in the future. It's already happening, and Lex Sokolin has been in the middle of it all along, and he joins us now on the Express. Welcome, my friend. Thanks so much for having me. You're the global fintech co-head at Consensus now, which is a blockchain software company. Tell us what the company does and what you do for them. Absolutely. So Consensus is at the heart of the Ethereum ecosystem. It was founded by Joe Lubin, who is a co-founder of the Ethereum project. And so we build on top of the primary programmable blockchain out there. We've got a couple of household names as projects. So for users, we power the wallet MetaMask now at about two and a half million monthly average users. For developers, we build protocols, we provide APIs through companies like Infura and Quorum. And so if you're thinking about how does the JP Morgan settlement coin work, we run that protocol for them. And then we also spend a lot of time on financial enablement and getting fintech software to run on this next-gen architecture. And so I also spend a lot of time thinking about what does the future of finance really look like? We're going to get into that. So when you're talking about Ethereum, some people know Ethereum as the token, which has been rising in price along with Bitcoin and all the rest. And then there's the software part of it. That's the part you're most involved with. But the two, there is some intersection there. Explain the the actual core difference for folks that may not be familiar. This is the major innovation of blockchains, right? So you start out with Bitcoin and Bitcoin is both the network the history of the network of all the transactions, and then a native coin, a native token that is moved around on the Bitcoin blockchain. And so there the core innovation is having the scarce digital thing that somebody can give to another person and then no longer have it. Like it's really hard to send somebody a digital object and then not have a copy of it. Just try to do that with music or with a Word document. And so the next step after this idea of digital scarcity is... What if instead of just having a Bitcoin that you could send back and forth, you actually had an entire computing platform that can run software and software can really do anything and you can run software on this network and apply the concept of digital scarcity to whatever is inside of the software. And so the Ethereum network is a world computer. It can execute software like a calculator or like a exchange or like a much more complicated lender or insurer. And then within those structures, you can have different financial instruments, which are the tokens of those particular protocols. And then separate and apart from that, you've got to have some sort of fuel for this world computer. You got to price 
how it does its computation. You need to rent space in its computation. And that's what the Ether token is for. You know, so if you see Ether becoming more expensive, in part that's because a lot more people are actually using the software that is running on the Ethereum network. That's a very good explanation and one that I've been confused with, but I'm glad you did it. You're a futurist. You're one of the smarter people I know, which means I need to get out more. But I want to peer into the future with you, Lex, and ask you some simple questions, but just answer them like I'm 10 because that's about as far as I got, okay? So for folks that are wondering (laughs) why Bitcoin really took off in the past year in terms of price and acceptance by these stodgy financial institutions, we have the Bank of New York Mellon now getting ready to accept Bitcoin. That's the oldest bank in the United States, started by Alexander Hamilton. So What's the real reason, from your point of view, that Bitcoin really took off in the past year? It's a fantastic play, by the way, Hamilton. Really enjoy it. It was written by a high school alumnus of mine. So I I feel a lot of connection to, to Hamilton and to Bank of New York as well for other reasons. Regardless, Bitcoin is the oldest crypto asset that people are familiar with. It's now been in production, meaning it's live and running for over a decade and it's worked. Now, the the Visa network and the PayPal rails and all sorts of financial systems, including the Federal Reserve's Fedwire, tend to break. And Bitcoin has continued to work. And as it gathers more security through more mining, and as it gathers more adoption and and holders and people's confidence, and as it continues to exist, it is de-risked for investors and for institutions. There's a couple of reasons why large companies are are now engaging with it. One is just a matter of time. So they might have started the project 3 years ago and finally launched it now, you know. So you're you're seeing kind of the echo of adoption over time. Second is from a regulatory perspective, it's not that there's no risk and no clarity, but it's much more that the whole asset class is more understood, it's less wild and I think people are much more comfortable holding the asset over time and the infrastructure around it. So things like custody and exchange and liquidity, the stuff that you get out of institutional capital markets, that is now in place as well. And then the third thing to kind of highlight is the macroeconomic environment. It's been a fantastically terrible year in 2020, truly biblical levels of destruction and challenge that people have gone through. And one of the consequences, of course, is the need to generate more money supply to help people get through the difficult times. And so there's lots of economic disagreement about what the impact is of this money supply. But the the fact is we've now, from the Federal Reserve's point of view, printed about five trillion of assets, if you include the one point nine from the Biden yeah, stimulus, that's coming right up. Yeah, which is great. You need it for people to live their lives, but it is a sixty percent or so print of money supply on top of prior figures, which would sort of imply a sixty percent dilution in the value of the dollar, which would sort of imply a appreciation in the price of commodities like Bitcoin, and so many people like Elon Musk and others who have a technological leaning started to use Bitcoin to store their own or their company's assets. And that institutional adoption has really massively spiked the price. But when we see it have these days where it sells off 10% or goes up 10%, is that just a simple function of market supply and demand characteristics or more people buying or more people selling? Because 
unlike things like gold or even stocks where there could be some fundamental reason, Bitcoin doesn't seem to behave by those characteristics for those of us on the outside who aren't trading it every day. There is both a lot of Bitcoin and not a lot of Bitcoin. So there's a lot of actual, I guess, enterprise value or the stock of all Bitcoin is is worth quite a bit. And you can start to compare it to gold in a meaningful way. It's maybe one eighth the value of all gold, which is quite large. At the same time, people don't really want to sell their Bitcoin. And so they're holding on to it for a long time because they believe in it or because selling would trigger price decreases or because they're tax sensitive, I'll put it that way. And so people are holding to Bitcoin in a way that they might not hold other assets. And so the amount of Bitcoin that there is to trade is actually not particularly high. And so you can imagine any large trade from an institutional uh, party, whether it's a treasury or an investor, will have an outsized impact on sort of that marginal amount that there is available for trading, which then reprices the whole stock of the asset. And you could see it happening basically in real time. That's the thing about Bitcoin and the ledger there. Five years from now, am I more likely to pay for groceries with a credit card or a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin? So who's going to be using it in five years and for what? I know you can buy some things with it today and you can exchange with others, but what about you know for normal consumers? I think that nearly everybody will own Bitcoin as an investment asset. And if you look at the Coinbase numbers today, for example, they have 43 million users. There's only 330 million Americans and maybe 200 million of them have bank accounts and assets. And so that's a pretty high penetration rate. You know, Somewhere between 10 and 40% of Americans have touched crypto assets. And so I think Bitcoin will remain an investment asset and it belongs in a portfolio. It has correlation benefits. It has interesting exposure. There's macroeconomic arguments you can make. In terms of the underlying payment systems, I don't see Bitcoin being the payment mechanism because of the qualities of its network. It's much more likely that the USD, the US dollar will be used as the unit of account, will continue to be used as the unit of account. And so we're now seeing tokenized versions of the US dollar. About 55 billion, I believe, of US dollars are now on Ethereum, where they're called stablecoins. And then there's the question of, will you pay for your groceries with a tokenized dollar or will you pay for it with something that travels on the card networks? And I think that's a question of adoption. And then if you look at the tokenized dollar, the question is, will you pay for things using a tokenized dollar that's a private money? So think of like using a money market fund to buy a sandwich, or will you use a central bank digital currency, which is what is happening in China now, uh, already maybe five months ago when they've launched a a virtual currency that is already in the mobile wallets of Chinese nationals. And we know that there's the Federal Reserve is actually looking at this. They just hired somebody who used to work at TDA, a very smart person to run, how they're going to look at digital currency going forward. You're a real expert in the payments world. You do a lot of work in that. So that payments world has exploded in the last five years. You have companies like Square, PayPal that are ubiquitous now, multi-billion dollar institutions, very hot stocks. People are into them. But they're also the visas and the MasterCards, and they are enormous and have only gotten bigger. So who's going to rule the roost in payments for the next decade? Is it going to be a visa, a MasterCard? Is it going to be like a Walmart or even a, an online investing platform, like a Robinhood that suddenly becomes a full-service institution? I think the fintech payments companies are really well-positioned. So you've got to separate out the card networks like Visa and MasterCard, which 
everybody plugs into. And this, this is why Visa is worth 500 billion and Deutsche Bank is worth 20 billion because banks are banks, whereas a network is a platform that everyone connects into. And essentially Visa gets to tax the entire economy as, as the payment rails. So there is some question of, will there be a different Western payment rail? In China, we'd be talking about and financial as a payment rail that connects to the central bank. And you can see that power gave a little too much gusto to Jack Ma last year and is now being checked because it is a huge power to run the economy on your rails. And I think in the West, especially in the US, we are addicted to credit cards because of the cash back and sort of like the whole system is set up in a way that's really, really sticky. Then there is the layer of companies. And by the way, Visa and MasterCard are all working on incorporating crypto networks as part of their strategy. If you look one layer up the stack, you start to get into processors and the stuff that actually sits on top of the rails, that is your interface for payment. And so if you go into a store and there's a a physical object where you swipe your card, or you might be on a website and there's a little PayPal box where you put in your information, or there might be another company that does a QR code, or there might be the MetaMask crypto wallet. These things process payments and integrate into merchant experiences. MetaMask doesn't, but other companies like Coin Payments might. And so Square and Stripe are in really powerful positions in that they have services for developers to build into large commerce platforms. And they're kind of in a pole position to benefit from increasing digital commerce and increasing volumes of people using stuff online. So I don't see Walmart getting in there. I don't think that the Robin Hoods can really go into payments. Now, Square's Cash App which is a payments app, can go up the stack into banking and trading. But I don't see the trading and the banking startups like Chime or Robinhood or Betterment having that much success with with payments because it's just a very different mindset. You wrote recently in your terrific Substack, which is called The Long Take. I recommend that to folks. It's called The FinTech Blueprint, I should say. I recommend that to folks who are interested in following you about Square and why it bought Tidal, which was Jay-Z's streaming service, which for folks like me seemed completely out of nowhere, but for you seemed very strategic and important. Why would a Square, a payment processor like Square, want to own a streaming music service like a Tidal? I have three reasons. And that's not to say, you know, the transaction's right or I'm bullish on it, but I have three reasons. And so the first is there's multiple businesses inside of Square and Cash App is one of them. ARK Invest has the thesis that Cash App on its own is massively valuable and and kind of invisible to people how, how valuable it really is. Cash App is more used than Venmo. And that's hard beating Venmo. I would not have wanted to do that fight. And the way that Square did it is through influencers. And so its marketing customer acquisition strategy was to partner with hip hop artists and influencers to do money giveaways through social media. And the way that you would have a celebrity give you this handout basically is by linking them to your cash app wallet, which is Genius, because otherwise you would just spend it on Google ads and Google would crunch that into the fire pit that is their advertising revenue. And so they're super connected to the community through artists and in buying title, they're basically buying their core distribution channel, their audience generation. Number two is artists are small businesses and Square is a small business bank. They want to provide bank accounts and payment services and treasury management to probably everybody that is streaming on title. And then number three, which kind of gets us back to crypto sci-fi utopia land, is 
it's no secret that Jack Dorsey is a fan of crypto assets and Bitcoin, and that there are teams both at Twitter and Square that are focused on crypto. And one of the recent hot trends is non-fungible tokens, which is a token that is unique. It's not like a Bitcoin and another Bitcoin are the same. They're fungible. A non-fungible token is like, here's the digital Mona Lisa. It's the only one. It's not a currency. It was our term of the week on the Investopedia Express podcast last week, folks. You'll remember that. And I'm so glad you brought it up. So continue on with why that's important in this transaction. So if NFTs give some power back to the artist, some economic, some capitalist power back to the artists to own their music and to collect royalties and to publish directly to their fans and benefit directly from the interaction between the fan and the creative object, then you can start seeing how plugging in that payments infrastructure into a essentially like a music label, but on the blockchain with embedded payment rails and financial attributes is a really interesting option value play. It's like, it's a black swan outcome. It could be really good or it could be a zero, but it is, I think, embedded in owning a, uh, a streaming service like Tidal. What's the sleeper brand we should all be watching out for in the next few years that will change the way we live or the way we work and doesn't necessarily have to be a client, but what's the brand out there where you're like, you don't even know what this is about to be, but it's about to be big. What? Do, who's got your eye? Uh-oh. In some sense, I'm going to be talking my book in, in that I really think everyone should spend the time to be curious about things like Compound or MakerDAO or one of my favorite projects is called Yearn, Y-E-A-R-N. And these projects are literally rebuilding what it means to lend and what it means to collateralize and borrow and what an asset manager even is. So I'm I'm really a big fan of these companies that are doing the plumbing. I think in the traditional world, it's the same thing. I'm I'm kind of bored of fintech distribution. So even though I do like M1, M1 Finance, I think that they're doing a pretty nice job of fintech distribution. You know, on the manufacturing side, you've got lots of banking as a service players or embedded finance players that will continue to to grow. And so the Bancorp, Green Dot, or even companies that things like Shopify for me are, are really interesting because they're using frontier technology or they're powering the stuff that is that is right at the frontier. You know, they're not trying to just watch their quarterly margins and and hit estimates. They're they're really sort of powering the next generation of user adoption. Lex Soklin, our friend from the past with his eye on the future. So good to speak with you. And thank you for joining The Express and for being such a good friend to Investopedia. Very kind of you to have me. Thank you so much. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term the educated investor needs to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Neil from the great city of Dallas, Texas. Neil suggests price discovery this week, and that caught our eye because that's kind of the challenge for investors, especially these days when asset prices are mostly rising. Well, according to Investopedia, price discovery is the overall process of setting the spot price or the proper price of an asset, security, commodity, or currency. The process of price discovery looks at a number of tangible and intangible factors, including supply and demand, investor risk attitudes, and the overall economic and geopolitical environment. Simply put, it's where a buyer and a seller agree on a price and a transaction occurs. 
Well, you remember those non-fungible tokens we were talking about on last week's episodes? And do you remember the digital artist named Beeple who was selling non-fungible tokens of his work for millions of dollars? Well, last week, his piece called Every Days, the first 5,000 days, which consists of 5,000 different digital works he's made every day since 2007, that sold for $69 million at Christie's Auction House. That is to say that the non-fungible token sold for that amount. The buyer, who goes by the handle MetaCoven, is the chief financer behind MetaPurse, a crypto-based fund that acquires NFTs and other virtual properties. It claims to be the largest NFT fund in the world. Well, back to price discovery, MetaCoven discovered that the right price for a non-fungible token connected to a piece of original artwork was worth $69 million. He can't hang the piece, but he does own the token. This, my friends, is 2021. Well, as we celebrate Women's History Month, we'll let Indra Nui, the former CEO and chairwoman of PepsiCo, take us out this week. Nui transformed PepsiCo from a sugar water and salty snack selling global number two to Coca-Cola into a multi-billion dollar global juggernaut by changing the company's approach and fundamental relationship with its customers by focusing on healthy foods, drinks, and snacks. Behind all of that was her commitment to performance with purpose. Nui was one of the original stakeholder capitalists. Here's Nui describing what that means in an interview from 2010 with BCG Consulting. So it's critically important we understand that we have a profound role to play in society. And whatever we do has got to be done with a view to the long term, with a view to making sure that we are constructive members of society. So when I articulated performance with purpose, I wanted the notion to be that we would be a company that was doing better by doing better. May you put purpose behind everything you do this week and always. We're grateful to you for joining us this week, and you can always find us on all the social media platforms, including our new TikTok channel and through our daily newsletters. Beware of bubbles, and we'll see you a little further on down the line. Whoa, whoa.